Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we've, we've reached the point in the service where we're going to have the, the reading and teaching of God's Word. And here for us to read the scripture this morning is Philip. So come on up, Phil. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the year is 2019, and the Toronto Raptors have finally won the NBA championship. This is, yes, yes, woohoo, thank you. Thank you for the woohoo. It's still worth clapping for. Um, this is a wonderful time to be a basketball fan in the country of Canada, and especially in the city of Toronto. And so you wake up that morning, you get out of bed, and pull on your Kyle Lowry jersey. And you head downtown to Nathan Phillips Square for the victory parade. When you arrive at Nathan Phillips, it doesn't just look like the entire city of Toronto is there. It looks like the entire province of Ontario has descended upon this spot. One of my friends at the church, Warren, was there. Warren, I know you're here somewhere. And he told me he, he only had room for one of his feet to be on the ground. They were so pressed in together. And so you're there, and there's this carnival atmosphere. You know, people are dancing, singing. There's a DJ playing music. And you wait for hours. And at last, the victory parade starts to roll into Nathan Phillips Square. The first vehicle to come in carries none other than the Sikh in the Six. And people start chanting, let's go Raptors. After that, the bus comes in. And at the front of the bus, there's Drake. You get sprayed with a bottle of champagne. This is one of the greatest days of your life. Behind Drake on the bus, you see some of your favorite players. You know, there's Lowry, there's Kawhi Leonard, and you start cheering things that you don't even fully understand. You're saying, bored man gets paid. I'm a fun guy. 
this is a good time. You know, your voice is hoarse by the end of the day. Your hands are red from clapping. But it has just been a wonderful day of celebration of the victory of the home team. Now, I want us to reimagine that victory parade. And I want to change one detail to see how it might have affected your experience, okay? So imagine we're back in Nathan Phillips Square and the bus with the players roll in and you're getting really excited. All of, all of a sudden you notice that the crowd around the bus is getting strangely quiet. The DJ cuts the music and you look up and you see that Kawhi Leonard is weeping. Weeping, not tears of joy, but tears of sorrow and anguish. How do you feel as a spectator at this point? You probably feel bewildered, confused, empathetic, upset, and you immediately pull out your phone and go to BlogTO and Google, why is Leonard crying? What could make him cry today of all days? On this day, the day of triumph, what could make him feel so unsettled? Well, this is exactly the uncomfortable situation in which Jesus' followers find themselves in Luke chapter 19. This is the day of their victory parade, and the man of the hour, Jesus Christ, weeps in the middle of it. And so let's walk through the story that Luke has for us, asking the question, what does he want to tell us as Grace Toronto this morning? Well, the first thing that Luke has for us, that he wishes for us to know, is that Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem as the true king of Israel. Now, a little bit of historical context is helpful here because there's a lot of imagery and symbolism that's being employed in this triumphal entry, which would have been very obvious and easily understood by people in the ancient Near East, but remains a little bit confusing um, or opaque for us today. So the, the story begins with Jesus sending two of his disciples ahead of him to a village to get a donkey that he intends to ride into the city of Jerusalem. Now, why does Jesus do this? He could have walked. You know, Bethany was only a little over three kilometers from the outer gates of Jerusalem. He could have walked. He gets a donkey as an intentional, symbolic act because he wants to communicate something to the people around him. But why a donkey? Why doesn't he get like a, a noble stallion that he can ride into Jerusalem? Well, some people have speculated that he rode a donkey as a way of displaying his humility. You know, a humble animal for a humble man. That could be the case, but I actually don't think that it is. You see, in the ancient world, a donkey was the royal mount of a king in peacetime. When King Solomon had his enthronement ceremony, he rode a donkey, the donkey of his father, King David. And this wasn't to display the fact that he was humble. It was to display the fact that he was the king in a time of peace. In the ancient world, when a king was in a time of peace, he rode a donkey. And when a king was going on a campaign to war, he rode a war horse. So Jesus intentionally gets a donkey as a symbol that the crowds would have understood that he was a king who had come in peace. The second image that we see here is the crowds of people taking off their outer cloaks and spreading them on the ground in front of Jesus and the donkey. In some of the other gospel accounts, they talk about people going into the fields to cut palm branches, which they also spread on the ground. Now, this is not something that people would do for just anybody. They wouldn't do this for a priest. They wouldn't even do this for the high priest. 
They wouldn't do this for a nobleman. They wouldn't even do this for the most wealthy merchant in Jerusalem. Spreading the cloaks on the ground and the palm branches on the ground, this is an ancient display of homage, which the people would only have done for a king. And so when the, people doing, when the people are doing this activity, they're essentially laying out a red carpet as the king approaches his city. And the third thing that we see in Jesus' approach to Jerusalem are the titles that the crowd um, name him with. So as he draws near to the city, the people start shouting, right? We see in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the other gospel accounts record that people shouted things like, you're the son of David, the heir of the Davidic dynasty, or you are the king of Israel. When I was in high school, there were certain ceremonies in the school year where we would sing both the Canadian national anthem and also the royal anthem of Canada, God Save the Queen. People don't sing it as much these days. You might not be familiar with the lyrics, but it's God save our gracious queen. Long live our noble queen. God save the queen. Send her victorious, happy, and glorious. Long to reign over us. God save the queen. This is the essence of what the people are shouting as King Jesus approaches Jerusalem. And so for an ancient person seeing this, they know instantly this is a royal procession for a king. We have a king on a noble steed, a king who's obviously coming in peace. We have the red carpet treatment and people hailing and singing about the king as he approaches. And now we have the Pharisees. They're no fools. They know exactly what all this symbolism means and they become increasingly agitated. You see, the Pharisees don't think that Jesus is the king. The Pharisees don't think that Jesus is the Messiah. And so as a consequence, all of these images are completely inappropriate in their minds. So they go to Jesus and they say, you tell your disciples to cut it out. Cut it out. This is totally inappropriate. And Jesus responds in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation itself recognizes that her king has come, and creation itself is on the verge of bursting into song. We can think of psalms from the Old Testament, like Psalm 93, which talks about the hills singing with joy, the rivers clapping their hands, the seas roaring at the approach of the king. And so in this royal procession, we see that Jesus isn't just like any king in the ancient Near East. No, he's the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords. He's the king who created nature itself and whom nature itself longs to praise. And so I, I want to pause here for a moment just to ask the question, do you see Jesus as the king? Do you see Jesus as your king? In our society today, the common perspective on Jesus is that he was a wise spiritual leader. And certainly he is that. But he's much more than that. Often in the church today, we can conceptualize Jesus as our friend, our helper, our encourager. And he is all those things. Absolutely he is. But he's more than those things. He's the king. He's your king. 
And in this triumphal entry passage, we see that the crowds themselves and even the stones, the way that Jesus speaks about the stones, teaches us the correct posture towards the king. We're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to throw our cloaks down in homage to him. We're supposed to cry out praising him. And so this morning, if, if you're someone who you're investigating Christianity, you're investigating a spiritual journey, I want to tell you, there is room in the royal procession for you. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can join the royal procession following King Jesus, even if you don't have all the answers. And if you're someone you've been a Christian for a while and you find yourself in the wilderness, you've wandered off the path of this parade, come back. There's room for you. And so this is obviously, you know, a royal procession that's happening. And this would be the highlight. This is like the high water mark in the experience of the disciples up to this point. They've been following Jesus for years. They've been listening to his teaching. They've been watching his miracles. They've even participated in his ministry. And they've been working in relative obscurity. And yet now they're moving towards the very heart of their cultural life, Jerusalem. And all of a sudden... Their movement, it seems like the entire world has come on board. The crowds come flooding out from the city, and they see what the disciples see. They see Jesus as the king, as the Messiah. This is, you know, the thing they've been working for and waiting for. It's the high point in their ministry. Can you just imagine how excited they were, how vindicated they felt? And they're winding their way down the Mount of Olives. The parade turns a corner. You know, maybe they pass a fig tree. And all of a sudden, the beautiful city of Jerusalem is spread out before them in all its splendor. And Jesus bursts into tears. Loud tears. He's wailing. And he he speaks these really dark, prophetic words over Israel. This is a very dissonant image that Luke has intentionally put here to shake us a little bit and cause us to think, why is Jesus so upset? What's going on here? Well, in verse 42, Jesus, amidst his tears, is able to say these words. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things which make for peace. You see, Jesus knows that he's going to go into Jerusalem and the people are going to reject him as the king. They're going to reject the peace that he brings. They want to pursue their own agenda of peace which doesn't involve Christ at all. And he knows that their agenda of peace is ultimately going to lead to their own destruction. And he's heartbroken as he sees that future. The crowds that were around Jesus and the crowds in Jerusalem, they they had their own ideas about the things that make for peace. They looked at their culture and said, you know, we know what's wrong and we know what needs to happen to fix it. You see, at that time, the people thought the big problem in Israel is the fact that we've been conquered by the Romans. We've been humiliated, colonized. We're ruled by these vassal leaders. And when they see Jesus, they say, we hope this is going to be the guy to come and lead a coup d'etat to throw at the Romans, throw at those vassal leaders, restore the kingdom of David, restore Israel to its glory days, the days when it was wealthy, prosperous, honored around the world, when all the surrounding nations could look at Israel and say, it is so obvious that God's hand of blessing is on your nation. That's what peace looks like. And when they realized that that wasn't Jesus' agenda, 
They reject him. And Jesus, in this, these dark words of prophecy, he's foreseeing what the events that were going to happen a mere 30 years later. Because in the late 60s AD, the people of Jerusalem would seek their own agenda of peace. They would seek to violent, uh, violently uprise against their Roman colonizers. And the tragic consequence of this is that they brought down the full fury of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem would be besieged, the people would starve, the temple would be destroyed, and many would die. And Jesus weeps over this future. Now, you know, this sort of prophecy, this whole ending of the triumphal entry section may feel very strange and like it doesn't really have anything to say to us today. But I want to suggest we're actually not so dissimilar from that ancient crowd. Because I think each of us in this room have in our minds an idea of the things that would make for peace in our society. If you go to the University of Toronto, you go to the Women and Gender Studies Department, and you go to a professor and say, can you tell me what is wrong with our society and what can and must be done to fix it? You will get some passionate answers. If you go to the Environmental Studies Department and you ask those same questions, you will get passionate answers. If you go to OISE, the, the teacher's college at the University of Toronto, and ask, what's wrong with our society? What do we need to do to fix it? You will get passionate answers. Uh, in a few weeks' time, we're going to have an election in Ontario for the provincial government. And hopefully, the major parties are going to be looking at what are the challenges facing our society and what can we do to address those problems. And yet Luke, the gospel writer here, would have a warning for each of us. He would say, most of us don't fully realize how deep-rooted the problems are which face humanity. And as a consequence, our solutions aren't deep enough either. We don't realize how deep the problems are which face humanity, and so our solutions aren't deep enough either. We're like a group of gardeners who we see some dandelions in our garden, and we decide we're going to clear them out. We get our scissors and snip off the flowered heads of those dandelions. It's not going to clear the garden of weeds. Now, I should pause to give a caveat, because I don't mean to imply that it's not a valuable thing to work for, pray for, vote for, advocate for, things which will improve our society. That's a very important Christian duty. I would say. When my, uh, when my two grandmothers were born in the early 1920s, women in Canada were not considered legal persons. And I'm glad that we don't live in that society anymore. I'm glad that there were brave Canadian suffragettes like the, the famous five who pushed for equal treatment for women and men under the law. That was a good and Christian thing to do. And yet, at the same time, if we look at the problems that face our society and we think that the solutions can just come from us, can come from humanity itself, I think Jesus would weep for us too. And so as you think today, I'm sure each of us has ideas about what are the things that are wrong in society and how can we fix them. As you think about those, I wonder, would Jesus say that your solutions go deep enough? If we could just, you know, solve global warming, then we'd have peace. If we could just have as many female CEOs as there are male CEOs, then we'd have peace. If we could just get rid of these bloody Romans, 
then we'd have peace. But Jesus knows that the real problem isn't that the people had been enslaved by the Romans. The deeper problem is that the people were enslaved to dark spiritual forces. That was true then and it's true today. We're enslaved to the gods of wealth who say, just a little more and you'll have peace. And so we sacrifice our time, our health, our families in pursuit of the peace that comes with just a little bit more. We're enslaved by the God of lust who says, just a little more and you'll have peace. And we sacrifice our spouse or our boundaries in pursuit of the peace that comes through gratification. We're enslaved by the gods of reputation who say, just a few more Instagram likes and you'll have peace. And we sacrifice that real interpersonal interaction face-to-face. We sacrifice our evenings scrolling on our iPhone screen, hoping we're going to find that elusive peace. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem to launch a coup d'etat, but it's not against the Romans. Because he knew that if he ousted the Romans without dealing with the forces that enslave us, new oppressors would just pop up elsewhere. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to go toe-to-toe with the powers that truly enslave us. And he didn't go on a war horse this time. He didn't go with a sword in his hand this time. He went on a donkey with empty hands. Hands ready to be pierced by the very people whom he had come to save. He went as a king even though he knew the only crown awaiting him in Jerusalem was a crown of thorns. He went as a king even though he knew the only throne awaiting him in Jerusalem was the cross. And he went as a king whose subjects hailed him in this instance, but less than a week later would at best abandon him and at worst call for his very crucifixion. But he did this because he was dedicated not to merely snipping off the heads of dandelions, but to pulling them up by their very roots. When this king of peace approached Jerusalem, he wept over the city. He said, would that you, even you, had known today the things which make for peace. Grace Toronto, don't let him weep those same words over you. Receive the king of peace and join his church as we pursue a peace which is far more transformative, far more enduring than our society could ever ask or imagine. Amen. So we're, we're at the point in the service where we do have some time for some Q&A. Traditionally, this is the time where Grace Toronto either asks me no questions at all, or they uh, punch me in the gut several times by asking things I have no idea how to answer. So we'll find out which it is today, Ryan. We'll find out. Let's see here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. We live in a time where the emphasis is placed on individual freedoms and truth. How do I, as a believer, surrender to the truth of God's sovereignty and not attempt to fit the Lord Jesus Christ into my box of what is priority? Can you read the last part of that one more time? Mm -hmm. How do I submit to you? Yeah, I'll I'll read the whole thing. We live in a time where the emphasis is placed on individual freedoms and truth. How do I, as a believer, surrender to the truth of God's sovereignty and not attempt to fit the Lord Jesus Christ into 
uh, into my box of what is priority? Yeah, I mean, first, I would really affirm whomever wrote this question because I think the temptation all of us experience is to try to squish Jesus into a box that's safe for me, you know? I think about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan, who um, is sort of a Jesus figure in the story, and they always say, he's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not safe. So I just want to affirm that I think you have the right inclination that we don't want to squish Jesus into a box. I think, um, I'll just be very brief, one of the best things you can do is to be in a community, in a church like this, in a small group, or another gospel-centered church in our city. Because I think one of the best ways to avoid squeezing Jesus into a box is by seeing how other believers see and understand him. And that's going to sort of, you're going to have your own blind spots, I have my own blind spots, and and seeing how others see Christ is going to help open your eyes to all the different ways that he is. So be in community, be sitting under the word in community together. Great. Okay, another question. How does the death of Jesus root out our sin? How does the death of Jesus root out our sin? Good question. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems uh, strange, doesn't it? How could, um, how could a, a Palestinian Jew being executed 2,000 years ago have any relevance for my life today? I think the, the important uh, note I would make here is that the death of Jesus isn't the end of the story. And um, this Holy Week, we're going to be focusing on Good Friday, obviously on the crucifixion, but we don't end with Good Friday. We end with Easter Sunday where Jesus is raised from the grave victorious, conquering sin and death. And so I think um, I would encourage you, I, I think I need to be brief here, so come back on Good Friday, come back on Easter. And we're going to get more of the picture on that together. Great. Maybe one. I'll do one last one. final one? Yeah, okay. One final. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this will probably be the hardest Ask one me too. about <laughs> marijuana or something now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there's no questions on marijuana. Okay. Just, uh, yeah. Just so we're clear. Um, <laughs> there have been. <laughs> you talked about how pursuing a Christless peace uh, led to Jerusalem's destruction. How do we celebrate and affirm good things in our culture, sorry, good things our culture pursues without overtly supporting the heart behind them? And the example given is uh, calling out racism is good, but I don't support uh, Black Lives Matters and all that they stand for as an organization. Okay, interesting question. Um, so I think that one of the things that the Christian church teaches us about is common grace. And that's the idea that... Um, God can work in the world through many means, even, even through people who don't identify as Christian, even through people of other faiths. And so I think it's really important to look for and celebrate the common grace, the ways that God is working in this world. I gave the example of those Canadian suffragettes. I don't know the personal faith journey of each of them. Um, it could be that they were Christians. It could be they came from no faith at all. But I can celebrate the way that God was using them to advocate for justice in Canada. And so I think we need to look for those opportunities to partner with people, even if we don't share the same reasons uh, for pursuing the justice. I will say at the same time, Tim Keller has a good book, and the name is escaping me right now. And one of the chapters in the book, he says, how can we pursue justice without creating new oppressors? 
I think that's a very fascinating question, and I think it's one that the Christian church is uniquely um, able to speak to. So I think it's important that we, that we continue to partner with people and continue bringing the faith that we have to bear in those conversations. Thanks for the questions. I will um, have Ryan send me some more, and if I didn't get to yours, please do email me, graham at gracetoronto.ca.